Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It is the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And thanks to our music-loving friends at Geico, we've got a great episode for you today with former editor-in-chief of Spin Magazine, Doug Broad. Doug's got a new book out called They Just Seem a Little Weird, How Kiss, Cheap Trick, Aerosmith, and Stars Remade Rock and Roll. He's sharing all of the crazy ways these four bands cross paths, intersected with each other, how they were woven together, and in some cases laid the foundation for bands that followed He's got stories about some of their feuds within the bands themselves and amongst each other. Kiss and Aerosmith still at odds in a lot of ways. Who's friends with who to this day and who's not? And why he included the little-known band Stars in this legendary grouping. I had never heard of Stars until reading Doug's book, and I was surprised since they were managed by Kiss manager Bill LaCoyne. Had so much support behind the scenes uh, out of the gate from the record company and uh, the, for the press. We talk about why stars never really made it and how Kiss felt about them and why uh, you guys should check them out uh, now. We dissect stage shows, performances, the songs and songwriting, what the movie Rock and Roll High School would have been like had uh, Cheap Trick taken the gig instead of the Ramones. Uh, you got to read Doug's book for yourself to find out uh, how they weren't the object of Riff Randall's obsession. All of these stories and more available at Amazon or wherever you get your books. And follow Doug on Twitter. He's at Doug Broad, B-R-O-D. All right, let's get to all the great stories and fun facts about Kiss versus Aerosmith versus Cheap Trick versus Stars, and maybe even decide who the greatest American rock band of the 70s really is. Doug Broad starts right now here on Talk is Jericho. Thanks to Geico. Doug Broad is here, and we are going to be talking about your new book, which is really cool. It's, it's, it's called a, a Little Weird. Is the lyric a little bit weird or a little weird? Uh, they just seem a little weird is okay. the, the title of the book, and it's the, the lyric from the Cheap Trick song. I always thought it was, they just seem a little bit weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those uh, Mandela effect things, right? <laughs> but it's a really cool idea of, of kind of talking Getting into depth about the 70s rock uh, scene, which was so you know classic and monumental to this day, but focusing on four bands that are very similar, three of them who are Rock and Roll Hall of Fame legends and one who is not. Um, so describe how you came up with this idea and the bands that, that you wrote about and, and, and how you wrote the book. So yeah, so I, I've always loved 70s rock. I mean, that was my first love. I grew up in the 70s and Kiss was my first band that I loved. And I always wanted to write a book that would look at 70s hard rock from a different perspective. So I noticed on the Gene Simmons solo album from 78, he had members of Cheap Trick, Aerosmith, and Stars play on that record. And I thought right. that would be a really cool launching point for this book, where I can see how these bands all intersected. And they really did intersect throughout the 70s. Right, and you're talking about Kiss, Aerosmith, Cheap Trick, and Stars. And, and like I said, it, it is really interesting how much they intersect and kind of the similarities between all four of them. We, we can get into all that. And, and also the fact that Stars, I mean, a lot of people, including myself, don't even really know who Stars is. I know the name Stars, but I'll be honest with you, yesterday was the first time I ever listened to Stars. And it's like the first album and then the second album, Violation. They're both great records, you know. Oh my gosh, like what a what a what a what a coincidence! What a what a you know a revelation. But Eddie Trunk loves Stars, and Brian Slagle, who you wrote about, the the founder of Metal Blade, loves Stars. And I texted both. I'm like, dude, I'm listening to Stars for the first <laughs> time ever. Like, how how did I miss this? It's so right up the alley of these other bands. I have a confession to make. So I, I actually never heard Stars in the 70s. I didn't actually hear a note of Stars until their stuff was re-released in 2005 on CD. So I always knew who they were in the 70s. I knew they had connections with Kiss. They were also managed by Kiss's manager. They toured with Aerosmith. I'd see their pictures in Cream and Circus magazines. But I never heard them because they never got played on the radio. And it wasn't until 2005 when I actually finally heard them. And, and like you, I immediately kind of fell in love with them. So, yeah, so I wanted to include them in this book. I mean, they are the, the odd man out. They're the wild card. They're the band that no one's really heard of. But there was always that level of band in the 70s, like Angel mm -hmm. and Head East and... Um, 
the gods and Montrose, bands right. that were always kind of bubbling under and they always opened for the other bigger bands, but they never really kind of made the leap. And I wanted to explore why Stars, a band that had Jack Douglas producing two of their albums, Jack Douglas obviously produced Aerosmith and Cheap Trick. They, they, they toured extensively opening for Aerosmith in the 70s. They shared management with Kiss. It's like this band had so many opportunities, similar opportunities as these big bands, but they never made it. So I wanted to explore why. Yeah, like you said, all of the elements were there. And once again, just shows kind of the cohesiveness between, you know, all of these bands in that, okay, so Stars, Cheap Trick, and Aerosmith had the same producer. Stars and Kiss had the same management. Of course, the genius Bill LaCoyne. You know, it, it's one of those things I never realized all of the kind of the, the symmetry between them until, until you wrote this book about it. So I think when we were talking kind of more about Stars, I guess just to kind of go right into it, what was the reason why? Because like you said, the material is there. The team is there. Michael Lee Smith, the singer, kind of looks like a, a Jagger-esque type like Steven Tyler did. They got a great guitar player with a great rock and roll name of Richie Rano. I mean, everybody knows that name. But it just didn't click. And, and, and like you mentioned, there are other bands like that. Like Angel could be almost confused with stars. And, and they were very, very much. I mean, in fact, people I spoke to for the book, they always, a lot of people said, oh, weren't they the band that were on Casablanca? No, that was Angel. And, you know, they were the same. They were from the same era. In fact, right before the pandemic struck, they were going to be going on tour together, Stars and Angels. So, Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So so looking looking into their career for the book, you know, I spoke to a bunch of people and, and you know, I think the band themselves, I think a big part of why they think they didn't make it because they just weren't on the radio. And back then you needed a song on the radio to sell a ton of records. And, you know, they had a, a, a minor hit with a song called Cherry Baby, which to me is their best song, but it went to number 33 and never really went up from there. And they, were, they weren't able to capitalize on that. So I think the fact that radio just didn't take to them and they just weren't in the public consciousness enough, that was kind of, you know, that, that kind of explained why they never really reached those heights. It's funny, though, because like you said, they spent a lot of money. And, you know, even to this day, to play the radio game, you need to spend money. And I think it was Capitol Records that you said they were. They, they, they yes. did spend the money on them and also, once again, had this kind of you need a strong manager who can say, okay, if you want Kiss to do this, then you got to do that with stars. Mm -hmm. So once again, it's, it seems like everything was all lined up and just, was the material not strong enough? Maybe to, if, if the fans have to get into it, maybe. They yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, that's all opinion. I mean, it, people have different ideas of, you know, what a great song is. I happen to love all of Stars' records. Mm -hmm. um, and I've heard from some other musicians who actually love Stars. They said their, their songs are sometimes a little too complicated. You know, they just went off in many directions. They weren't straightforward enough. Also, some of their material was really kind of nasty. I mean, just lyrically, mm, yeah. it was sardonic and violent and kind of sexist and smarmy i mean that was 70s rock a lot of the time but you know michael e smith as a as a lyricist probed some very disturbing places so that could have been a little detrimental as well and i think a lot of people back then were kind of suspicious of bands like stars who were like the second band from from a management um, mm. roster it's like they, i think many people saw them as kind of molded in Kiss's image. They never really came up from the bars and the club scene because, like you said, O'Coin used his leverage, having Kiss, to put stars on, you know, op they, they opened immediately in arenas and theaters for Peter Frampton and ZZ Top. Yeah. They never really played the club scene, so they never had a grassroots following. So I think that might have people might have looked on that with a bit of suspicion as well. Yeah, something I think even you write about in the book that Bill Coyne said in retrospect, he should have maybe built them a little bit slower to gain that grassroots because that's how all the big bands, you know, the other three that we've described to Iron Maiden, to Metallica, you, you start by having a little bit of a 
of a revolution happening before you even get, you know, get signed or whatever it may be. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you mentioned some of the, uh, there's a song on, on, I think it's the first stars record called pull the plug. And it's about literally pulling the plug on someone who's dying. I think you mentioned it was kind of a political situation that was going on at the time. And it's pretty uncomfortable to listen to even in (laughs) 2021. I was like, I don't know if I like this tune. (laughs) Yeah. You know, that, that was just, part and parcel of where they were coming from. I mean, they also had a song called Subway Terror and they had a song called Nightcrawler, which were basically about stalkers who were terrorizing women. So, you know, looking at that stuff now, it's certainly, you know, it might not be deemed acceptable now. And back then it still was, you know, a little kind of nasty, I guess. And and the song that you mentioned, uh, Pull the Plug, I mean, there was a very famous uh, DJ in New York at the time named Vince Skelza, who I mentioned in the book, and he was very powerful on the airwaves. And he came down very hard on that song. He thought it was just kind of despicable. And I mean, he hated the band, but he hated that song in particular. And and like you said, right. it was it was about a very uncomfortable subject. It was about pulling the plug on someone on a girlfriend who was on life support. <laughs> Yeah. Gotta love the seventies, right? <laughs> um, you mentioned some of the influences that some of the people that were influenced by stars. I know that Nikki Six was one of them. Who are some of the others? That- oh, Nikki Six, uh, Ricky Rocket, um, right? Gosh, uh, John Bon Jovi, um, Lars Ulrich, and uh, Steve West of Danger Danger was a huge fan of them as well. So once again, I mean, do they have their place in rock and roll history? Uh, and our friends at Geico brought up another good question. Was there a rivalry between Kiss and Stars? You know, I, I'm not sure there was a rivalry on Stars's part, but I do know that, you know, Paul Stanley in particular, you know, he even said in his book, and he told me when I interviewed him, um, that basically they were the second band on Bill O'Coin's management roster. Right. So Paul thought that, you know, Bill was was creating these other bands in Kiss's image, giving them a logo, slapping a logo on them and saying, you know, here's the next Kiss. And, you know, I think, you know, for what it's worth, you know, he as as Bill's first band, he might have felt a little threatened by that and and a, and a little um, frustrated by Bill taking his eye off of Kiss. Mm hmm. Yeah, because you mentioned there's there's one picture of stars and Kiss backstage, and he said it's basically the only one that was ever taken. And Gene was kind of even wondering why it even existed. Yeah, you know, Gene, it came out later in a in a in a radio interview when it sounded like both Kiss and Aerosmith, who were on this interview touting their um, their co-headlining tour. On this radio interview, they they both seemed to be making fun of stars, which I found kind of weird. But mm. uh, yeah. When you do this book, uh, they just seem a little weird. Our friends at Geico want to know if you are interviewing a lot of people or just going through archival information. Um, you know, I, I actually I interviewed 136 people for the wow. book, but also had to rely on archival information as well. I mean, I, I I got a lot of the key players, although I didn't get all of them. I didn't get any of the Aerosmith guys um, interviewed for the book. They they declined for whatever mm. reason and. I couldn't get um, uh, Gene Simmons for the book, although I interviewed him many years ago and was able to use some of that material. I did get Paul Stanley. Wow. The guys from Cheap Trick. I got um, Bunny Carlos and Rick Nielsen. I got all the star- the guys from Stars. I also got Bruce Kulick from, from mm-hmm. Kiss. So, I mean, I, I got a, a lot of the big players. I didn't get all of them, though. How was Paul? Like, What did you approach him with as far as what you wanted to interview him for? Well, you know, Paul, you know, I, I've read Paul's books and his first book in particular, the, you know, the, the face first the music. Mem- yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one of my favorite rock autobiographies. It's he's just a very kind of, he comes off as a very kind of deep, thoughtful yes. kind of profound guy. And, and going into the interview, I mean, he certainly came off that way. He was probably overly diplomatic when speaking with me. I mean, he didn't, he didn't want to ruffle any feathers, although he did some, he did say some things in the book that I thought were pretty significant, but no, I thought he was a, you know, he's always been kind of a hero of mine because I've always loved Kiss. So Mm -hmm. it was actually really nice to talk to him finally. So let's go into the Kiss side of the book. Then you mentioned that, you know, obviously you're a huge Kiss fan and it's so hard. Well, I'm putting words in your mouth. Was it hard to um, you know, write a book about a band that's had so much 
you know, coverage over the years and trying to find something new with a new spin on a new twist on it. Yeah, you know, that that's exactly right. I mean, that's what I try to do with the book is to not regurgitate the the kiss story, which is right. told so many different times and so many different ways. I mean, they, you know, each of the four members, original members have their own books where they tell their own stories. They, they have, you know, some group books that they've put out, which are great. Nothing to lose is that the oral history of their early years is just fantastic. Right, it's great, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I know I, I, I knew I couldn't compete with those books and I, and I knew the fans didn't want to read the same old story. So that's why I thought bringing in the other three bands and sort of, you know, interconnecting their their stories would be a you know would bring a different spin to it. Yeah, exactly. Which which I think it did because another thing I thought that was really interesting, and you mentioned that Kiss and Aerosmith have done tours together. It's funny though because I saw uh, you might have seen it too uh, an interview that Paul just recently did with I think it was Richard Marks, <laughs> and we'll tell tell because you probably remember it better than I do. It was very recent over the last couple months. Yeah, I just recall. I mean, I just I saw it a few weeks ago. Richard Marks was talking to Paul Stanley, and he mentioned that there was another singer back in the seventies who I bet you really loved. His name is Steven Tyler. And then Paul just like his eyes just bugged out and <laughs> he didn't want to say anything. He just changed, changed the subject. Immediately. What's classic Paul where he just sits there deadpan and then he just goes, yep. <laughs> and he's like, okay, we'll, we'll move on then. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I talk about that a lot in the book that there was a, a rivalry between uh Kiss and Aerosmith. And it, you know, it went back very much to the early days in 74 when they did two shows together and Aerosmith were the headliners. And, you know, Kiss at that time were just uh, starting to tour the country and they brought out their, their back then, what was considered their big stage show, which was basically a forklift that would right. lift up the drum riser and, you know, lots of flash pots and, and, and pyro and things like that. But you know the open the opening act never stood a chance with Air, with the likes of Aerosmith because Aerosmith didn't want to give up you know the stage they didn't want anyone to sort of you know have this great show in ahead of them so you know th there was some intimidation I think I think you know Joe Perry has said that they felt intimidated by Kiss's show how big it was he liked their music he thought that it was pretty good simple rock and roll but. You know, Steven Tyler never took to Kiss, and I think you know the the, the punctuation came when uh, their roadies got into you know were, were constantly at each other's yeah. throats, and knives came out, and it was pretty it was a pretty tough scene back then. So you know, Steven Tyler never liked Kiss after that. Well, it's interesting too because it's one of the things that I always think about when Kiss first started, and I like to to kind of go back in time, like. Imagine being a teenager hearing, you know, Eddie Van Halen for the first time when, when nothing like that ever existed before in 1978. Imagine seeing Kiss, you know, in 1975 wearing makeup. I'm sure people were laughing like, what the f is this, you know? And how do you do a show with so much pyro and like you mentioned, the forklift for the drum riser? And how do you open for a band and do that? Like, who's going to allow that, you know? Well, not many bands did. I mean, they, right. and, they, and they opened for the strangest bands. I mean, they opened for Argent. They opened for Golden Earring. They opened for Jojo Gun, like Blue Oyster Cult. I mean, that that's actually a kind of a, a simpatico pairing. But um, yeah, you know, bands didn't know what to make of it. So they were kind of threatened by it. And, you know, Kiss were doing something really different. I mean, a Alice Cooper kind of started it. Right. But. Kiss like just took it to a whole new level. Instead of just one Alice Cooper, there were four Alice Coopers in the band. Did you uh, ever think about including Alice as one of the four? Or was he kind of f too far ahead at that point? You know, you know what? Yeah, that, he was kind of early on, and and he was an inspiration to a band like Kiss. But but I thought, and and I couldn't be wrestled from this idea that these four bands appearing on Gene Simmons' solo album right. was such an organic jumping off point that I didn't really want to veer from that. Let's talk a little bit about Gene's solo record because you, you kind of go into it a bit about how the reason why all four, and I've had Paul talking about the solo records and Paul Stanley on this, on Talk is Jericho, but they kind of had reached a, a critical mass where they were ready to break up and Bill O'Coin came up with the idea of doing the four solo records 
so they kind of blow off some steam, you know, put the KISS logo on all of them so there's some cohesiveness. Uh, and that kind of worked, but it also kind of backfired. So to discuss the solo records. Well, it's funny. I mean, that's the myth is that, you know, the band were going to break up and they each did their solo albums because it would placate them. Apparently, and through my through my research, I discovered in a in an article in Circus Magazine, both Gene and Paul were already talking about solo albums, mm. like even a year before that. So it was kind of always in back of mind. But yeah, the, the band members were at a really bad part or of the career at that point. And, and that's what Paul had told me. And they needed to, you know, sort of showcase what they what they could do on their own. You know, I the solo albums are, are, are weird. I mean, I think Paul's was the most successful out of all of them because it sounded to me most like, like a Kiss, Kiss record. Yeah. yeah. And I think Ace's as well, but I don't think Ace is a very good singer, so I, it was kind of hard for me to get past that a little bit. And Gene's record is just weird. It's just like bizarre. Has some like funk songs. It has some Beatlesy songs. It has has a uh, you know this symphonic um, "When You Wish Upon a Star" cover on it. And and Peter's record, I just I just don't get it all. But. Um, yeah, it was a it was a fraught time for the band. It, you know, they were they were going through some really bad, you know, bad stuff, and it it was a way to 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 keep the band together, if only for you know for a short period of time. But it's interesting though, because what a solo album, like you mentioned, my, my favorite two are, are are Paul and Ace. I don't even own Gene and Peters. As a matter of fact, I just listened to Peters for the first time ever about a month ago, and after listening to it once, obviously I knew a couple of the tunes. It was like. There's no reason for me to ever listen to this again. <laughs> but having said that, like, isn't that kind of the point of doing a solo record to to expand your musical horizons? Now, us as Kiss fans love Ace and Paul because it's basically Kiss songs, whereas Gene mm-hmm. and Peter went out on a limb, which is where I'm going to lead you where Gene got all these special guests. But it seems like that is, the, is why you would do a solo record in the first place. Yeah, I mean, exactly. But... You know, I, I think that in in Peter's case, I mean, he was not really coming from the same place that the, the other guys were coming from in terms of, you know, the music that he liked. I mean, he was into R&B. He was into, you know, kind of jazzier stuff. Right. And, you know, it showed on that record. I mean, there aren't a lot of real kind of like chugging rock songs on that album. So that, no. you know, I think, I think for the average Kiss fan, you know, back in the day, they see Peter Chris in the in the cat makeup on the cover and they see the Kiss logo and they put it on and it's like, what is this? This is not a Kiss record. So right. it was a genius bit of marketing that that Bill O'Coin had to to have these very cohesive portraits on all four of the records. And, and, and I don't I don't know if you recall this, but actually inside the album, the, the actual vinyl album, there was there was a poster uh, of each of the performer of each of the artists, and it was cut out like a puzzle, so it would connect to right. another um, poster from another album in the series. So it was a there was a, a a real effort to make this kind of a coherent project, but the Peter Chris record was so far away from what the other three were trying to do. It was just a weird mix. Let's talk about Gene's solo albums, since that's what uh, gave you the idea to write your book. They just seem a little weird in the first place. And we'll do that after I say a quick thank you to Geico for making this great rock and roll episode possible. I know all you guys listening either own or rent your own homes. I know it's hard work, but you know it's easy bundling policies with Geico. Geico makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to Geico.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. Well, let's talk about genes, though, because this, like I said, this is kind of the, gave you the, the origin and the idea to write this book in the first place. But Gene's idea was just to stuff it with as many <laughs> celebrity names that he could. Right. You know, Gene, Gene has always thought big. He's a real ambitious guy, and, and he always wanted to make things bigger and bigger and bigger. And he had this kind of P.T. Barnum approach to this record. Let's get 
everybody I can in this circus of an album. So, you know, he, he had, um, God, he had so many people. Janice Ian was on this record. Um, Cher. Bob, Cher, Bob Seeger, Lassie. Lassie. <laughs> and, you know, he tried to, he, he says he tried to get the Beatles back yeah. together for a Gene Simmons <laughs> solo album, as if that was there, that was the place they were going to get back together. On a that would have been record. it. If only, if only George would answer his phone, man. <laughs> exactly. But since both, you know, Paul McCartney and, and John Lennon refused, he got the next best thing. He got two guys from Beatlemania. So yeah. he, he got two guys from a Beatles cover band to, to, <laughs> to sing on his record with him. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it is kind of the epitome of an excessive, like 70s rock record because it probably cost a fortune and you know i think logistically it was really hard to put together i mean he recorded the basic tracks in oxfordshire in england and then he also did overdubs in new york and in la so logistically it sounds like a nightmare but there's some really interesting stuff on that record and i contend you know that there's some of his best songs are on that record well, I, I mean, I agree. There's some, there's some great stuff in there. Um, but now you mentioned the guests that kind of uh, spurred you to write this book. So Joe Perry plays on it. Do, do we know what song Joe was on? Oh, God. I, um, Tunnel of Love, I think, is the song Gotcha. He's on. Tunnel of Love. Yeah. And then so who else? Who plays on it oh, from Stars? And then, and then you have uh, Rick Nielsen playing on See You in Your Dreams, which okay. is which is actually kind of a Kiss cover song because they had already recorded that on a Kiss album. And, it's on Rock and Roll Over, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then Rick Nielsen plays... Rick sorry, Nielsen Rick, played... Yeah, he was on... He played uh, on that. And then Richie Rano played on a song, and I'm just... I'm not remembering what it was. So, you know, Gene got all these guys playing on his record, and, you know, he was friendly with all of them at the time. So it was just kind of a... a place for him to sort of call in his friends. In fact, you know, I mentioned that Janice Ian was on the record and she was this feminist folky from the from the mid 70s and she happened to be Jean's uh, neighbor. So she got on the record. <laughs> yeah, I just looked it up here. So Joe Perry's on Radioactive and Tunnel of Love. Rick Nielsen is on See You in Your Dreams and Richie Rano is also in Tunnel of Love. <laughs> yeah, I think, in fact, I think though, I think Richie has said that that it's only his solo guitar that you hear on Tunnel of Love. And I know that Joe Perry has said he wasn't sure which of his contributions may, actually made it to the record. So, you know, that the, the, the credits are up for discussion. <laughs> so much to talk about, but let's talk a little bit about, about the fourth band, Cheap Trick. Because this is, uh, I had Rick also on Talk as Jericho, and after about 40 minutes, he got up and walked out. He couldn't take it anymore. He was great, but it was his son was there, Dax, to kind of pick up the slack. But Rick's a great guy. But when they first came out, once again, you have this very strange band that are neither fish nor fowl. They're not hard rock, but they're not pop. And two good-looking guys and two dorky-looking guys. And yet it worked perfectly for Cheap Trick and was completely original. Yeah, you know, one of, one of the things that links all four of the bands in the book is the fact that they were all theatrical, they were all kind of flamboyant on stage and they, they brought kind of like a fun element to a rock show. And, you know, Cheap Trick did that in spades with, you know, with Bunny, Carlos and Rick Nielsen being kind of the dorky, goofy looking guys. And then <laughs> yeah. you have, then you have um, Tom and, and Robin as these kind of gorgeous, like pinup art, models. Art, yeah. Pinup guys. So yeah, the, the thing about Cheap Trick, like you said, they didn't really, fit in any categories they weren't quite hard rock they weren't metal they weren't pop they they weren't really new wave they weren't punk they kind of straddled all of these categories so when they came on it was such a this breath of fresh air and they be, they immediately came became one of my favorite bands and up to this day they they've evolved into my favorite band and i've seen them around 50 51 times wow yeah, they just put out a new song a couple of weeks ago called Light Up the Fire. It's amazing. You know, they, they yeah, always yeah. have great stuff, you know. So how was it from a marketing standpoint? Was it easy to convince kind of the powers that be that or was it an idea presented to them that the two pinup guys would be on the front cover <laughs> and the two you know on, the, on motorcycles and the two nerds would be on the back on Schwinn pedal bikes? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So, you know, the first album had all four of them on the cover. 
with Rick and Bunny looking kind of bizarre and Robin and Tom looking pretty in a very kind of noirish black and white way. And I think they realized pretty immediately that they had to capitalize on the fact that there was this real dichotomy between two of the guys. So yeah, I think they, they played it up on pretty much every record after that. I mean, you, you, you never saw Rick without his crazy sweaters and checkerboard patterns and hat and, you know, crazy guitars. You know, he has guitars with five necks. He has guitars in the shape of himself. Of him, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, they, they, they've always played up that kind of humorous, kind of quirky element. And, you know, quite frankly, I think it really, it really worked for them. You immediately know who they are when you look at them. They're not a faceless band. And back then, there were a lot of yes. very popular bands that were faceless. I mean, you know, it, it probably would have been tough to pick out Deep Purple and Foreigner from a lineup just because. Still is. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I mean, even, and once again, even if we're talking about stars, it's like, I don't know. I mean, I, I, like I said, I'm not familiar with the music, but but still, you would know if there was a star in it, you would know one of the guys, but no idea who any of those guys are. You know? Right, right. You know, and that was a thing back in the day. I mean, you know, all these bands had great, great logos. So if you didn't recognize the the members yeah. of the band, at least you recognize the logo. Another cool thing, too, that I never noticed, and Geico didn't either, is Rick Nielsen's Hunts Hall gimmick. Is that done by design? You know, I, I'm not sure he ever really answered that question. And I, I probably should have asked him that when I interviewed him. But um it's so obvious that that his look has been patterned after Hunts Hall from the Bowery Boys. He has the same kind of rubber face, the same, you know, upturned ball cap. And here's the thing that I discovered while researching the book. I was I was getting into the the movies that these bands were either involved in or were going to be involved in. And, you know, Cheap Trick were passed over for Rock and Roll High School. Uh, the Ramones got that gig. Cheap Trick wanted more money, and Roger Corman, the producer, didn't want to pay it. Right. So you said Cheap uh, Trick wanted fifty grand, and the Ramones wanted twenty five grand. Exactly. And Corman exactly. said, "Which one's the twenty five grand? I'll take them. <laughs> the Ramones. <laughs> That's exactly it. So, you know, the the guys who actually wrote the movie though were were so taken by Cheap Trick that they actually wrote a treatment for a Cheap Trick movie that would have featured some of the people from uh, Rock and Roll High School. And also they wanted to cast in the movie Hunt Hall playing a <laughs> long lost relative of Rick Nielsen. So it was very apparent throughout their career that Rick and Hunt Hall were going to be inextricably connected for the rest of their careers. Well, um, you know, it's interesting too, because because uh, I, I was going to point out as well, that both Cheap Trick and Kiss, and once again, it's it, it, you really picked a, a great group of, of four bands because this one's touring with that one, and that one has the same management as this one and produces and all this other stuff. Both Cheap Trick and Kiss kind of really made it when the live record came out. That was what put them to the top. We're talking about Kiss Alive after three records, and then, of course, Live at Budokan after two records? Um, after, after three, three records. records. Right. After yeah. three records. The thing about Budokan, though, is that they had already had Dream Police right. completed and ready to go and ready to be released. And Budokan took off and then Dream Police sat on the shelf for nine months. Wow, that's crazy. Until Budokan kind of played itself out. And that was a really a real turning point for the band because the band were never more popular than in 1980 when Dream Police came out and they were you know, headlining arenas. They, I saw the Dream Police show in New York in 1980 at Madison Square Garden, which was wow. Cheap Trick's only, first and only um, arena headlining gig in New York for their entire career. Well, it's so funny because they've become kind of the perennial opening band. Like everybody takes them out on tour, but never really the headliner. Like would anyone even pay to see them headline at this point, you know? I mean, I, I see them... Whenever there are, whenever I can, I see them headline theaters. I see them in clubs. I see them opening for Poison or whomever or Jeff Leopard. But yeah, so they were never able to sort of reach those heights again because in 1980, right after I saw them, Tom Peterson left the band, and they had 
just finished recording or they were at, they, they were finishing recording um, the next album, which was all shook up that George Martin produced for them. And then Tom was gone. So when they came back to New York the following year, 1981, they ended up playing Radio City Music Hall, which was a third mm-hmm. or quarter of the size of, of Madison Square Garden. You know, it's amazing, too, because you would think like, Tom Peterson, he's the bass player. Like, who's really going to care? But when when he left, the band did go down. It's it's just like Adrian Smith when he left Iron Maiden. You don't expect this guy to be such a foundation of the band, but he really, Tom Peterson, really was. And and the the, the funny thing is, is that the two guys that they had replaced Tom <laughs> yeah. both were Tom lookalikes. Yeah, exactly. And even funnier or stranger, I should say, is at the end of Tom's kind of sabbatical from the band he was playing in a band with pete comita who was the first guy to replace, <laughs> replace him in cheap him. trick so it's like all these the ways these the, the way these guys all tie into each other is just strange <laughs> explain the whole concept of budokan for our friends at geico and everyone listening because obviously kiss alive was done uh, by the record company trying to capture kiss in their natural element but Budokan was more a mistake than anything. Is that right? No. So Budokan was actually just supposed to be a um, an album for Japan, a promotion, kind of a not a promotional record, but a record only for the Jama- the Japanese, Japanese crowd. Only, right. Yeah, and um, you know, the record company decided to release an EP to radio stations of a few songs from that album, and they kind of took off. Um, and the record company didn't realize it, but all these imports started flowing in and uh, people were buying the imports and they figured, you know what, we need to put this out ourselves here. And, you know, that, and then it, it just snowballed from there and became this huge record. You know, I, I want you to want me was the, the, the single from that record and it made them huge stars. You know, it's interesting though, Doug, once again, if you listen to the two biggest songs by Kiss and Cheap Trick, I mean, the biggest song for each band, Rock and Roll Night from Kiss I want you to want me from Cheap Trick. Both of those studio versions, terrible isn't exactly the right word, but they're not they're not great. I mean, Rock and Roll Night Off Dress to Kill is kind of stock. Mm-hmm. And I want you to want me is some kind of a country boogie doo-wop <laughs> shit. And both of those tunes from the live record encapsulates it and put them both over the top. Yeah, it's funny, you know, uh Cheap Trick themselves were never happy with the way I Want You to Want Me came out on that album, on, on In Color, their second album. Tom Werman, who was the producer of that record, he told me that he heard the song as more of like an English music hall kind of ragtime piano sort of song. And he added that piano onto the song. And the piano is a very kind of forceful instrument on that record. And the band never liked it. The band just thought it it neutered them, and it, it mm-hmm. made it and it sounded really weak. And they they actually cut that song for the first album. It didn't make the cut on the first mm-hmm. album. And and Jack Douglas, who produced the first album, you know, he wanted the band to sound stripped down and raw. And the way they sounded live was the way they sound the way they should sound on record. Tom Werman, on the other hand, wanted to make them palatable for the radio and get them a radio hit. So it didn't succeed, you know, with the studio version, but when it came out on, on Live at Budokan, when it was like loud and noisy and the guitars yeah. were pumped up and there was no piano, people actually heard the song anew for like the first time. Right. Similar to, to Rock and Roll Night with a different arrangement and it's a, a little bit more of a guitar solo on it and that sort of a thing. Exactly. Another thing to talk about, bumping back over to Aerosmith, is Aerosmith was so known for its volatility especially between joe and, and steve and the, how, how just how up they were and, and fighting and all that sort of thing kiss had that with gene or with ace and peter but ace and peter were in the background gene and paul never had that and and and, and rick and robin never had that but yet aerosmith was notorious for it just talk about that how bad they were just how bad were they in the 70s well i mean you could really say that it all came down to the drugs and to the bad behavior. I mean, you know, like you said, you know, Ace and, and Peter both had their issues, but Paul and Gene were kind of straight shooters. They were very ambitious. 
they would never let anything get in the way mm-hmm. of succeeding with Kiss. You know, Cheap Trick never had that outwardly. No one ever knew about it. it you know, that was never an issue that that affected the band. No. Um, however, with Joe and, and Steve, it was always there. It was there from the very beginning, and it got worse and worse and worse. And when you have these two very headstrong guys, you know, kind of running things, you know, it turns the situation very volatile. And and as I say in the book, you know, at, at some point, even the, the wives got into it backstage at a concert. <laughs> so they were, you know, all around them, there was a lot of negativity and a lot of antagonism. And that does not bode well for a band trying to, you know, chart a successful course as a career. If Aerosmith had not made that big comeback in the 80s, our friends at Geico think they'd be just a footnote in rock and roll history. I agree because they were kind of big in the 70s, but they kind of petered out before they reached their full potential in the mid-80s forward. That's that's a great question. You know, if you if you look at Done With Mirrors as kind of the the comeback the first comeback record in a way after draw the line you know when when uh, when when joe was finally back in the band if they would have left on that note that would have been kind of a a lame note to leave on but it's funny because with the next record with permanent vacation they they had um desmond child help out and desmond famously you know <laughs> co-wrote i was made for loving you with kiss and all of Kiss's best songs in the eighties, <laughs> which was, I mean, and yeah, and and you know that could be argued, and also you know that was a huge song for them back in nineteen seventy nine, even though it was a disco song. I loved it back then, and I still love it. Um, yeah, it's great. But uh, you know, and, and as I say in the book, you know, Paul was was asked to help Bon Jovi when they were writing "Slippery When Wet," and he suggested instead that Desmond help them. And Desmond went on to write some of their biggest songs and help make that record a huge hit. Then, you know, cut to many years later when uh, Aerosmith were working on Permanent Vacation, they called in Desmond based on his work with Bon Jovi and others. Mm -hmm. Um, And his songs for the band, you know, that he co-wrote, Dude Looks Like a Lady, Angel, they were huge songs for Aerosmith and sort of gave them that second life. So it kind of could be argued that if it wasn't for Paul Stanley recommending Desmond to Bon Jovi, Aerosmith might never had had that right. second life. Desmond was on Talk as Jericho uh, last year, whenever it was, and he said when he first came to the studio that they were writing this riff on a loop, around out, I'm out, I'm out. And he said they, they were singing over top of it was cruising for the ladies. Yeah. And then, and then Desmond told me as soon as he yeah. suggested "Dude Looks Like a Lady," he's like, "You know what? This is a transgender anthem." Yeah. So he was so proud of that. <laughs> he said, "He said I thought he said try Dude Looks Like a Lady," and and Joe goes, "We don't know what that means." And Desmond said, "I'm gay. I know what it means. <laughs> Do it." <laughs> but once yeah. again, too, I mean, all three of these bands, and and a, and a few others, ZZ Top and, and Van Halen were able to make that jump rush was another one from the 70s to the 80s by making adjustments to their sound and not, you know, changing who they were as a band. But, you know, 80s Aerosmith is not 70s Aerosmith. And I I love 80s Kiss. The 70s purist hates it. Cheap Trick had one of the probably their biggest hit with The Flame and and Don't Be Cruel. Once again, they were able to, to, to morph into more of a contemporary band. I have to say, and you know, I've said it a couple of times. You know, I I know a lot of people who were on on board with Kiss very early on in the '70s, in the mid '70s, and then at some point they just drop off. And I was one of those guys. So, like after 1980, I got into punk and I got into new wave, and I just kind of left Kiss, you know, off to the side. And I and I missed a lot of the '80s stuff. I kept up with the singles. I'd heard the singles, but I didn't really buy the albums. It wasn't until I started working on the book where I actually revisited some of that stuff that I missed. And I was like, this stuff is actually really good. Mm -hmm. But my tastes had changed and I couldn't see myself going from like the Sex Pistols and the Clash, you know, back to Kiss. It just seemed like a a, weird thing. So, yeah, exactly. Let's talk a little bit more about uh, 
the relationship between the bands to this day. They're still touring together. I mean, we've seen Kiss and Cheap Trick, Aerosmith and Cheap Trick, Kiss and Aerosmith. Are they all kind of pals now, or is there still a little bit of animosity like we talked about earlier between Aerosmith and Kiss? Or what was that tour like when they, when they were together? Oh, well, when they were together in 2003, you know, Aerosmith had a, had a very specific requirement for Kiss to play with them. And that was that they needed three original members, not two. And at that point, both Peter and Ace were out of the band. So they had to call Peter back in. Ace refused to do it. So Peter Peter came in and, and it was a miserable tour from all accounts. And from what I understand, you know, from what I saw, you know, Kiss essentially blew Aerosmith off the stage. But they were the opening act. Or they were they, they were on before. Geico thinks it was Kid Rock, Kiss, and Aerosmith. It was actually uh, Saliva, and Kiss and Aerosmith, or and there were a couple of other bands that alternated with Saliva. Yeah. So it was a it was it wasn't exactly that Kiss were opening, but they were not the they were not, they were closing, not the last yeah. band. They were not the last band on. So um, yeah, a lot of a lot of the old animosities came up, you know, during that tour. And a few years later, both Joe and Steven were on a radio show and they started trash talking Kiss, saying that you can, you know, Kiss were a comic book band and you can't compare a <laughs> Kiss song to an Aerosmith song. And, you know, Paul, he, you know, he, Paul, Paul doesn't take shit. So he went on the radio on Rockline and, you know, he was wondering why they would even bring this up and you know he was very diplomatic about it and you know peter and peter came you know was on a radio show in new york and he was also disappointed to hear that from the aerosmith guys so you know it's funny because all these years later these guys still harbor resentments and and they still have this kind of competitiveness and animosity uh, I mean, it, it it works for you guys as as wrestlers. So, I mean, you know, it, it, so I guess it works for rock bands, too. <laughs> I, I love that, though. Like, like, they're both, you know, sold 100 million records and, you know, every show is huge. But they still can't let go those two shows in 1975 where, you know, Kiss's forklift, you know, took up the stage. Like you mentioned, and we didn't really get into it with the roadies pulled knives on each other. And I mean, I love that shit where like, where, like, where else are you? How many bands nowadays, 30 years down the line, would be like that motherfucker tried to steal my forklift. <laughs> but still, and, and this, this also speaks to how much respect that Joe Perry has for these bands. I mean, Joe Perry went on stage with kiss a couple of times kiss, on that yeah. tour and he was wearing, he was wearing the boots. So he yeah. actually, you know, he was one of the first guys to, I think he might've been the first guy to go on stage and kisses, you know, yeah. to jam with kiss and, you know, the kiss and cheap trick love, the love fest is still there. It's always going to be there. You know, Rick Nielsen is very close with Steven Tyler and Joe Perry. Joe Perry had cheap trick perform at his 50th birthday. Um, <laughs> And, you know, Rick Nielsen and Gene Simmons are very close. In fact, I, I talk about in the book how these bands were like actually like Kiss and Cheap Trick used to trade songs like Gene Simmons would would send Cheap Trick songs that he thinks they should record that Gene mm -hmm. Simmons wrote. And then Nielsen, Rick Nielsen would send Kiss songs that he thinks that they should record. So there was definitely a love fest going on back then. Well, I love too. And surrender, uh, of course, you know, took my kiss records out. Uh, and Gene and Paul were talking about how flattered they were. Cause at the time nobody was giving them the time of day and here is cheap trick name checking them. And they thought that was so cool. And then, and then on a, a stars song rock six times, they actually uh, have a lyric about, um, a scratchy little record called walk this way. So they're basically name checking <laughs> yeah. Aerosmith. So, you know, it, back then there was a lot of, uh, a lot of mixing. I like how uh, cheap tricks, big, big production was having a kiss album that they would hold up during that. And took my kiss records out and then throw it in the crowd afterwards. <laughs> and they still do it. They still they do still it to this day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, last, uh, a few questions for you, Doug. Um, let's talk a little bit because once again, I've had a lot of these, you know, these types of guests on our show. I had the 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 guy who made the Cream documentary, whose dad 
owned the magazine and, and Jan Uliski was on. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about how important music magazines like Cream were back in the 70s and for these four bands. Yeah, so that's, uh, I devote a chapter in the book to um, the influence of these magazines like Cream and Circus, Hit Parader, even Rolling Stone. I mean, you know, back then in the in the mid to late 70s, you did, obviously didn't have MTV. So you didn't see a lot of bands on TV. You saw them on yeah. late night shows like Midnight Special. Sometimes you saw them lip syncing on on air, on um, on American Bandstand. Uh, Don Kirshner's rock concert was a really great show in the 70s. And, and Cheap Trick did a performance on that show in 77 that is spectacular. It's probably the best like rock and roll on TV I've ever seen. So go to, go to YouTube and look for that. But yeah, so there, there wasn't a lot of information about these bands unless you read these magazines. So right, no, no internet and anything like that back no, then. There was no, no internet. There were no TV, even radio didn't play a lot of this stuff. So you had to look to magazines to, to, to read about, you know, these bands. So a lot of the guys I spoke to, a lot of the musicians who were influenced by these bands, people like Gilby Clark and and Kim Thale from Soundgarden, they were devoted to these magazines, and it really helped shape the music that they ended up loving. And obviously, these bands were all a part of that. Yeah, and it's like they would really kind of build up a lot of the bands. I know Kiss, for example, you mentioned Jan's article. She, she was the first person to ever play on stage with kiss and i i was i dreamed i was a member of kiss on in, stage in my, in my maiden form bra <laughs> right yeah but but she told me that was kind of the publicity stunt that they came up with her and bill lacoin to give kiss publicity and press and they said that kiss was always in cream even before they really broke and that's kind of helped them to, to break yeah yeah so you know between both cream and circus magazine you know, Kiss had two magazines that really wanted to write about them. In fact, I interviewed uh, Robert Duncan, who's also in that documentary, who was a big writer editor at Cream. And he told me that, you know, whenever he, they put Kiss on the cover, it would sell. Right. So he, he, he put together, you know, Kiss special issues. And it got to the point where, like, even he wasn't a fan but he found that it was so lucrative to keep writing about them that he would just, you know, he would he would put them in the magazine whenever he could. And I had some other writers tell me that they weren't fans, but, you know, editors wanted stories on Kiss. So they would interview him just Kiss because sells. it was a way to make some money. When we kind of boil down to it, and obviously Cheap Trick is, is huge. They got in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame a few years ago. Uh, but the two standouts, you know, Aerosmith and Kiss, and you could put Van Halen in there, but let's not for the sake of this discussion. Okay. Who is the greatest American rock and roll band of all time? Would you say it's Kiss or would you say it's Aerosmith? Oh, man. See, I would say Cheap Trick. So you'd put um, Cheap. Okay. Okay. You, you say, you, so you say Cheap Trick is. Okay. But, but that, that's just because they're my personal favorite. Um, but in terms of the greatest American rock band of all time, I mean, that is a. It's so hard to pick between Aerosmith and Kiss, but I would go with Kiss only because they were my first love and I have such a deep abiding respect and passion for that band. But I have to say, you know, an album like Rocks, Aerosmith Rocks, to me is like the quintessential ultimate 70s rock record and it just basically defines the era. So it's a difficult choice, but it, you know, I would have to go with I'd have to go with Kiss. You know, it is hard too because you, you, I, I'm talking from an arena selling standpoint. Because Cheap Trick, obviously great, but they're not as big, right? And that's why I mentioned Van Halen. If you want to, the Eagles obviously are in there, but to me, I got to agree with you on Kiss, and I'll tell you my reason why. Uh, when I say American rock band, I'm not just talking about in America. I'm talking on a worldwide basis, mm-hmm. and it seems like Aerosmith. I know they're internationally big but seemed like they're much more of an american band i mean they do headline download in england you know that sort of a thing but it seems like kiss really kind of beat the boards beat the bushes from europe to japan to south america to every country in between yeah and i think it can be argued that kiss were probably more influential on bands that came after 
than maybe Aerosmith was. I mean, I was talking to people like Scott Ian and Kim Thale and so many others and, and, and Gilby Clark and Ricky Rocket. They all loved Kiss. All of these bands, band members loved Kiss. And they went on to influence not only the hair metal guys, but also the grunge guys. So all the these thrash bands guys, did. Yep. Yeah, all these bands did. But even talking to a lot of these alt-rock guys like um, Butch Walker, Butch Walker loved Kiss. That was his first band. So, you know, I think people have a real sentimental affection for Kiss that they don't yeah. have for any other band. You know, you're right, too, because uh, once again, Kiss took the world by storm with, with you know, the gimmick that just completely, you know, kids all around the world were just mesmerized for it. And you can't really replace that. What you feel when you're a kid, you know, it's hard to, to beat that. That's, you see, for me, like, I didn't get into Kiss until the 80s. So I never saw the makeup until... But to me, I mean, we just did a video for an 80s Kiss song called Love's a Deadly Weapon where I jumped through a hoop of fire because the first time I ever saw Paul Stanley was a Heavens on Fire video where he jumps through a hoop of fire. Here I am, 50 years old, and I'm living my dream of being Paul Stanley in this video, you know? Well, it's funny. I think one of the reasons why Kiss, Kiss struck such a chord, at, at least in their makeup days, is that as a fan, you always found yourself defending them because no mm -hmm. one else... No yes. one else gave them the respect. So I, you know, I was in a high You're school right. in New York City, and I was one of two Kiss fans in my high school. Everyone else was into like Led Zeppelin and the Allman Brothers and Leonard Skinner, and I, you know, I, I liked that stuff. I didn't love it, but you always found yourself defending Kiss by, yeah. you know, and and explaining why they're so good. So I think as a defensive mechanism, you learn to appreciate them even more because you have to articulate what makes them so good and that stays with you throughout your life it's like yeah you're defending something because you're passionate about it and but you're right too doug and i think even to this day we still have to kind of defend because if you look at aerosmith much more mainstream i mean because of live tyler you'll see steven tyler at the grammys or at the oscars or you know he's hosting uh, american idol Kiss exactly. doesn't get any of that. Even to this day, even at the Rock and Hall of Fame, they wouldn't even let him play. Where it's just so stupid. Right. You know, I think <laughs> here we are, we're still defending Kiss. <laughs> yeah. No, I think I'm, um, you know, I'm a little older than you are. I think I'm going to keep defending them the rest of my <laughs> life. I mean, there's no choice. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Doug, one last question. And this one's for our friends at Geico. What's your favorite song from each of these four bands? Good one. Okay, uh, Cherry Baby from Stars, I think, is just their their magnum opus. Surrender, Cheap Trick, is is still my favorite rock song of all time. Kiss, and it's funny because I I, I started off the interview by talking about how much I didn't really care for Ace Frehley's uh, vocals. Shock Me mm -hmm. is my favorite Kiss song, and Aerosmith probably Sweet Emotion. Probably. There you go. Yeah. I'll go uh, Violation from Stars, which I just heard for the first time yesterday. <laughs> but I love the Gene Simmons. No, that's a violation. <laughs> you better not try it. <laughs> that was very good. And okay. here's the thing. Let me just add something. So everyone I spoke to in this book who mentioned Gene Simmons and was quoting Gene Simmons always used the Gene Simmons voice. They always yeah. lapsed into it, just hey, like Chris, you did right there. <laughs> this is Gene Simmons from Kiss. <laughs> uh, I'll do a uh, cheap trick. I'll do Dream Police, okay. just to be different from you. Uh, Kiss, I'll stick with, I'll do Black Diamond off of Alive. And Aerosmith, I got to do uh, Love in an Elevator. I love that tune. Wow, okay. It's a great okay. tune, man. Yeah, yeah it is. Well, Doug, it's, it's great talking to you, man. Like I said, it's a really cool book and a really great idea of these four bands. Like I said, some made it more, bigger than others, but it's definitely uh, the all, all cohesiveness between them and all great, great bands in their own right, for sure. I had a ball. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Doug. And everybody listening, and this includes you, Geico, pick up a copy of Doug's book. They just seem a little weird. How Kiss, Cheap Trick, Aerosmith, and Stars Remade Rock and Roll. It's available at Amazon or wherever you get books. Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but are you enjoying this show on Google Podcasts? You should know that the Google Podcasts app is going away this spring. 
That's right, going away, gone, as in no longer available. You can still enjoy this show elsewhere, though. Try out Spotify or Amazon Music, or maybe TuneIn is more your style. Whatever app you switch to, be sure to follow so you never miss the next episode. And thanks for listening, wherever you listen.